You're listening to the Touch of Flavor podcast, episode 72. You're talking about putting your fuck parts in my head where my brain lives. You know, in nature, only a handful of creatures mate for life. But isn't that, like, cheating? We can't do this 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Why not? The safety word is banana. It is so refreshing to be with someone who likes to fuck outside the box. This is the Touch of Flavor podcast. Dating and relationship advice by kinksters for kinksters. Join us as we tackle BDSM, sex, non-monogamy, and how to build extraordinary relationships in an ordinary world. And now your hosts, Cassie and Rigel. All right, guys. So today we're talking to Kevin Patterson. Uh, Kevin's the founder of the Poly Role Models blog, which is an interview series for people describing their experiences with polyamory. He speaks around the country on how race and polyamory intersect. And he wrote the book, Love's Not Colorblind, Race and Representation in Polyamorous and Alternative Communities. He has another book out now, which he co-authored, and it's part of a sci-fi novel series called For Hire. And the series centers around characters of color and other marginalized identities. Kevin's an active member of the Philadelphia polyamory community, and he's been practicing non-monogamy since 2002. So we cover a whole lot of ground. This is actually one of the longer interviews that we've done. We talk about everything from uh, Kevin's background in finding polyamory, uh, the representation of polyamory in the media, uh, kind of historically where that's at now, what's some good representations are of polyamory in the media, some diverse representations. We talk about the intersection of race and polyamory. We talk about community building, a whole lot of stuff, guys. There's a lot of great material here. So without further ado, let's hop in and talk to Kevin Patterson. What do you kind of see like your work as? I know you, you kind of got your hands in a lot of different things, which probably a lot of our listeners have heard of. I think my, like, what do I see my work as? It's just pushing forward representation. That's sort of the long and short of it, whether it be uh, polyamorous representation or marginalized people within polyamorous representation. Okay. And, you know, uh, a lot of people probably recognize your name, but for those who don't, you've got the... Uh, Poly Role Models blog. You have the Love Isn't Colorblind book. You've got another book that's coming out too. Yeah, the For Hire series. And granted, it's not a series until we get a second book out yet. But right now, the first book, Operator, is out. And we're working on a For Hire audition right now. Hopefully, we'll get that out by the end of the summer. That's sweet. So yeah, and we'll talk about all that stuff today. I, I You know, we were talking before the podcast. I think there'd been some conversation about just because... Uh, It'd be good to touch a number of different topics because you're doing so much. So I wouldn't mind talking first just about how you found out you were poly, how long that's been, that kind of thing. I've been non-monogamous for 17 years. I think it's 17 years coming up this August. Okay. My wife and I, back when we were just dating, we had only been dating for a few months. We went to Caravana in Toronto with some friends and a threesome happened and we just sort of never looked back. Was that something that you knew like before you got into your relationship that you're interested in or was it something you figured out once you were in? Back then I was uh, still identifying as heterosexual and stereotypical cishet male fantasy, two women at the same time. <laughs> I mean, I always knew that. I always knew I was interested in that from the moment I knew women were a thing, but I didn't think it was something that would ever actually happen. I didn't think it was something I'd ever force. I didn't think it was something that other people would be interested in doing with me. It was just something that sort of 
happened unexpectedly and it landed us off the path of monogamy. And once we were off that path, we were just like, well, why, why stay on this path? So you didn't, you didn't know that you were non-monogamous. Like, cause you know, sometimes people get into relationships, even monogamous relationships already knowing they're non-monogamous. So this was something where you had, I think the fantasies that a lot of people have, but you didn't know yet, like, you know, especially from like a relationship standpoint, that that's something you were interested in. No, no. Like uh, I had only been in like a few serious relationships before then. I knew that there were points where I felt stifled in those relationships. Like it would be unfair of me to ask more from a partner, but also I know that I'm missing something in a partner. And that, but I didn't really connect those dots to, hey, maybe non-monogamy is a thing. Maybe non-monogamy is something I could actually do. That didn't happen until we were already post threesome. What do we want from our relationship? It wasn't until we stopped messing around with exclusivity that I think that non-exclusivity was even a factor or even a possibility. So yeah, it wasn't something I I really thought about. I think that's pretty common for a lot of folks. It's there's that fantasy aspect, and then eventually like tinkering with it, and then after sort of like the sexual spontaneous thing it's like oh is this a thing is this a thing that i can do yeah and i know for for rigel like you were even kind of scared of having a threesome with with (sighs) with me well it's that it's that kind of cultural right like you have that cultural kind of monogamous idea that like you know you're talking about the fantasy and especially with like the kind of cis het fantasy and it's but, you know, the, the way that that goes, you know, you're a young guy and, you know, I was coming out of the military and, you know, kind of the the prevailing thinking on that, right, is, oh, yeah, that's really cool. That's definitely a fantasy. That's definitely something you want to do. You just don't want to do it with something you actually care about because your relationship's going to implode kind of a thing. Yeah. And I know that once it became a possibility for me that first time, I actually said to myself, because like it was something that I had joked around about, and the woman I was dating, the woman who I who you know is now my wife, she took it seriously. But like once she took that joke seriously, and I thought this is a possibility, I remember telling myself, I don't care if this ruins this relationship, I've got to go for it because a guy like me, a stereotypical generic cishet dude, is never going to get this opportunity again. And I knew full well that doing this was going to, you know, damage my relationship, probably end the relationship, but like, at least I'd have the story to tell. And in hindsight, that's really dumb thinking. In hindsight, that whole scarcity of resources doesn't really exist. And also, like, like I said, back then I thought, you know, I'm never going to have an opportunity for a threesome again. And now, like, it's a pretty regular opportunity, you know, because... For completely different reasons than what made it a possibility way back then. That's funny. Yeah, for me it was it was almost the opposite. So when we got together, Cassie had well, you you'd been in a poly relationship already. Yeah, I had been in a poly relationship before. I had been in another relationship that I wouldn't say was was poly, but it was more uh, her and I had. More of like, I guess, like swinging kind of thing when I didn't have terminology for it. I was I was still very young at the time, but I, I had a partner and and she and I would, you know, go pick up a guy occasionally, uh, bring a penis into the mix. And then uh, we'd be like, it was cool meeting you. Uh, have a good one. So 
I like the fact that the gender role reversal there a little bit was was there. Um, so I'd had some experience with that. And I had had an actual poly relationship where I was an incoming partner with a couple. They had been together for a while and then I had joined them. And it was actually a really awesome, great experience. I didn't have the typical unicorn hunter fiasco that a lot of people have. And so for me, I was kind of going into things like, I really like you and this is something that can happen and you should give this a try. Yeah, but but that's what I was saying. It was kind of the opposite more for me because I was kind of like, so I was really invested in this relationship by the point that was brought up. And I was kind of like, no, like I don't want to fuck stuff up. So for me, it actually took until I was comfortable like with things between us before I was willing to try it. But then it was once, you know, once we had a threesome with somebody and it was like, oh, and nothing happened. Like, you know, like it was awesome and nothing else happened. Then it was like, oh, okay. So this is like a thing that can, you know, isn't going to fulfill kind of those societal expectations of fucking everything up. Yeah. And I remember like I had a friend who I was telling this story to. I was like, oh my God, we were in Toronto and this threesome happened. And I told him the story about it. And he just looked at me and said, you know, this can't end well, right? And and I I couldn't disagree with him because yeah I agreed it was going it wasn't going to end well, and that same guy came out to see me speak about raising polyamory last year at uh at Fillmore in Oakland, and I pointed him out in the crowd. I was just like, hey, <laughs> that guy said this can't this wasn't going to end well, and here I am having written a book about it, and here we are, and we shared a laugh and everything, and that was great. Well, you know, it's funny. I think a big part of that, and I know, you know, you're saying 17 years and we've been 11, 12 years now. No, uh, longer than that. Like, we've been married for. I'm like. Yeah, coming up I'm on like, 15-ish years. How long have we been married? Anyways, so uh, oh hopping gosh. lightly over that question. So, I have to do math on the fly. We've been married I've, 11 years. No. <laughs> uh, anyways, so. Uh, oh, my gosh. You're so bad at this. You're so bad. Anyway, I've been non-monogamous before you, so I've been non-monogamous for about 18 years at this point. Okay, and so. I've been more like 15, but... Yes, because yeah, we've been together yeah. for almost that length of time. Oh, geez. So, uh, but anyways, you know, it's I, it's funny because I think it, it's been interesting just even in the last few years how much perception has changed. Like I've been fortunate enough. I underwent a job change in last year. And, you know, so my last job, I I actually worked for the government, but I was actually out there. And then, so actually my, my newer job that I took, I actually came out before I took the job because I was kind of like, look, like you're going to run into this at some point. If you're going to fire me, I'm just going to stay in the place. I have union protections kind of a thing. And, uh, but it's funny. So, so my new boss is pretty cool about the whole thing. And, you know, we've been talking about, you know, he's, it's funny because he's just coming to me. Actually, we just had a conversation literally yesterday where he's like, I just saw this TV show and it had like polyamory stuff in it. And I was shocked. He was like, it was presented positively. He was like, I couldn't believe, you know, like it's, it's interesting how much, you know, when you're talking about that, how much that perception has changed over the years. I mean, certainly not all the way, but there's definitely been a big movement in that direction. Yeah. Yeah. Do you remember what the show was? He didn't know. He said it was, but he said it was interesting because he said it was a female who was a cop and like that she had been talking during the show kind of about it. And at first, like it was kind of left open, like, 
oh, this is going to be a disaster. Like she's cheating with somebody. But then like towards further in, you found out that no, like everybody knew what was going on and it was like a consensual situation. So he didn't know the name of the show. Yeah. I was actually curious myself. Yeah. Because I'm, I'm always curious about representation. I'm, I always want to know sort of like how is this being portrayed? Like from from what angle? Because the the common angle is always traditionally attractive, cishet white guy, traditionally attractive, cis by white women, able-bodied and well-to-do, well-educated. And I always want to know whenever anyone's doing something different than that, because like we need better representation. Well, and it's, I mean, we need better representation in that way. And I think just better representation as a whole, right? Because the the media is always so. We've actually had actually at some point. I want to talk about your your interaction with uh, that article. Was it the New Yorker? Oh, the New York Times article. New York Times. Magazine. Yeah, yeah, the New York Times. But you know, we've actually had a pretty significant amount of interaction with the media at one point back when Fifty Shades of Grey was a big thing. Yeah, I Cassie was doing a lot of media stuff, and uh, you know, they're but they're always up for the the exciting thing, and it's way more exciting to like do polyamory and catch like you know the 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 shit happening, and you know, kind of hint around into window about the sexual stuff and things like that than it is to really sit down and show good representation. Yeah. Like when I was doing a lot of the media stuff, I got PR training. I don't have a problem putting that out because I wanted to be intelligent when I talked wow. to- You kind of got thrown in unintentionally. I, 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 I did. Um, that's a whole other, that's a, a whole other discussion. I didn't seek out being in media. I got thrown into media and then I was like, I'm going to get some training on this stuff because I want to represent my community in a intelligent and respectful manner. I didn't want to like do anything that would injure anybody else that's part of my community. And one of the things that I quickly saw was that sort of stuff. Like they'd be like, oh, we could do an interview. Why don't you sit on your bed? It's like, no, like me and my poly group does not need to sit on a bed so you can take a picture of us uh, kinky people in our bedroom. And then it's like, oh, you know, why don't you hold this toy and turn this person this way? And it's like, no, we're not going to do that. So, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that that New York Times uh, article, like they the picture they ended up using of my wife and I were – was like us in our bedroom and we're 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 dressed pretty well but like she's turned in a way and I'm turned in a way where it looks like we're very unhappy and then like all the pictures that were in that article were really unhappy pictures and it paints a portrait it shows like it's that's the way we're represented in some of these cases where that article in and of itself wasn't even about polyamory it wasn't even about consensual non-monogamy. Like the major narrative of that article was about a couple who were unhappy in their marriage. The husband's like, hey, maybe we can try opening it up. And the wife's like, no. And then she goes and cheats on him and says, well, isn't this what you wanted anyway? And it's like, well, that's not what any of us are doing. Any of us who are in the pictures, because the people who they had that narrative around, we didn't get their real names. We didn't get the, like any actual imagery of them. So they're not represented in the story other than being the major like, – they're the major narrative. But like they're not doing any of the stuff that the article is about. Meanwhile, the folks who have like actual experience, our words were pretty much cut out. All we had are a bunch of uh, sad photos. Like 
Mm. Yeah, I'll, I'll link to the article in the show notes. You know, it's interesting. I've, I've gotten the impression from a lot of the, the stuff that you said around that, um, that, you know, you were pretty unhappy with it. And I, I thought it was a really, it was an interesting article, like in the fact of like, I didn't feel necessarily like the author went into it, like necessarily trying to like paint a bad picture for the clicks kind of a thing like you do with a lot of people. Yeah. But it was a really odd angle. Like and I, it was it was really strange. And, you know, it was kind of like she wrote this whole really, really in. I mean, it's a long article. Yeah. About 13,000 words. Yeah. And, and it was, but she really like, and like you said, like she really followed this narrative of this brand new couple who had no idea what they were doing. And I don't know, it was, it was really just an odd take on the whole thing to me. Like I said, it didn't feel intentionally malicious, but it was, I don't know. It was, it was just really strange in, in, in a lot of ways. Yeah, no, I, I didn't think it was intentionally malicious. And I, uh, I told the writer that uh, afterwards, but a lot of these media outlets, they're looking for brand new polyamorous. They're looking for, again, fitting that same cisgender white triad. They're looking for that dynamic, but also looking for people who have only been at it for less than a year. So I don't know if they're trying, if they have our representation in their best interests, just based on the demographic that they look for. It, it seems predatory, honestly. Oh, yeah. Just two months ago, we have a poly group on Facebook. And we had somebody who entered the group, personally messaged me and was like, do you have any brand new polyamorous folks that I could speak with? We'd love to have them on our TV show. And I said, no. Why would you not talk to someone who is more experienced? And she said, well, that's not what we're looking for. That's not what we're interested in. And I said, okay, can you explain to me why? And she said, well, when the uh, show producers and us sat down, we felt it would be more sensationalized if we got to see the stumbles and trials of a couple or a group that was brand new. And I said, this is what's wrong with the media. Yep. You're, you're sitting here because the original ad that she sent me was like, or maybe you could push this along. And it's like, are you polyamorous? Have you just opened up your relationship? We want to put out to the world what this is really about and in a positive way. And we're going to support you in your relationship. And it's like, no, bullshit. What you're trying to do yeah. is you're trying to get the people who have no idea what they're doing, shove a camera in their face and watch it explode. You're, you're, you're waiting for that dynamite where you can catch that stuff. Exactly, exactly. And we have to be really careful about that because if I had known sort of what angle they would have taken with that uh, with that New York Times article, I wouldn't have appeared in that. I do a lot of work. Like at this point, like I had a book that I was working on, the first book, Love's Not Colorblind. I had a, you know, a, a blog, which is just people showcasing their real experiences with polyamory. And none of that actually got mentioned in the article. The only words that I got in that article were about like, me not liking people parking in my parking spot, which is something that I, I started to care less about when it became my only contribution to a 13,000 word article. <laughs> well, you know, and people, it, it's it's really funny. Like, and even, I don't say well-meaning because they, they're, media people aren't well-meaning. I mean, media people are in a business, right? And like, yeah. people don't realize it, it really does, it, it, 
it kind of gets my gourd a lot of times. I don't want to say it gets my gourd, but like when people, that's something like if you're going to hop into, it's good to be prepared. Like I've seen people hop into stuff and at least you, you know, like you didn't say anything really though that was like bad taken out of context, right? Like, no, I, you know, I've, I've, I've seen, and I'm sure you've seen, you know, people hop in and just make fools of themselves. And then, you know, it's kind of fools of the rest of us by extension. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, conversely, the other article, the Philadelphia Daily News article, that was really well done because if you're going to be sensational about something that's already sort of outside the norm, you don't need to push a narrative. You can just let it be what it is. And that's what that article did, the Philadelphia one. where I didn't see that one. It's in philly.com. It was Philly Daily News. And it was Myself, my wife, the organizers of the our local Black and Poly chapter, and the founders of our local group, Philadelphia. And the writer just asked us questions and let us go and printed what we said. That was basically it. He just said, like, how did you get into this? What's your community like? What do you do? How do you relate to each other? Just basic questions like that and just printed what we wrote. It was a much shorter article. It was much better representation. And I put it all over the place. Like when the web version of it came out, I shared it all over the place. And our local group, Philadelphia, added, I think, something like 400 new members over the course of the next two months. That's fantastic. And most of those people were people of color. I was somebody who was in charge of intake at that time. Like I was one of the administrators of the group. So when people came in, I got to look at them. I got to see their faces. I got to see their names. And I'd say maybe two thirds of those people were people of color. So we added literally hundreds of people of color to a polyamory community just with good representation. Meanwhile, with bad representation, we added literally nothing. Well, and it's, you know, it's it's something where, and, and it's true, like good representation, you know, when we're talking about how the the culture started to shift around some of this stuff, a lot of that has to do with media representation, right? And like, you look a few years ago, and I there, there was something in a pride, I think, that kind of precipitated it a few years back. I can't remember now, it's been a few years, but like, since it's the, the media, and it's funny, we were talking to Alan M from Polly and the Media not too long ago. And we were talking about, he was talking about the enormous increase you've seen in mentions of polyamory and especially in positive mentions of polyamory and non-monogamy lately. And, you know, that that's part of that thing that builds that that cultural acceptance, right? It's like, kinksters hate it when you say this, but it's like Fifty Shades of Grey for the kink community. Like as shitty a book as that was, yeah, it mainstreamed something that a lot of people were already interested in. And like, so it's it's just really a matter of like people and, you know, and I, I highly recommend anybody who is thinking about doing something like that. Like you have groups like the National Coalition for Sexual Freedom who will like send you, here's a list of tips on talking to the media to do it productively. Like here's what to look for. Here's what to ask them for. Here's what to, I think it's definitely a good thing because you're right. Positive representation can help enormously. It's just knowing enough or being aware enough or being well-spoken enough to be a positive representation and not to, because you can be somebody who's, you might be a great representation in real life, but you can get in front of a camera and depending on how they're editing that and what the angle of the show is and how you talk to them, it can come across not positive. Yeah. I know somebody, I was talking to a fellow educator and she was saying that she was really surprised about how her interview turned out. And it was for a video interview that was only supposed to be four minutes long. 
And they recorded her for four and a half hours. And when they got the snippet back of this, what was supposed to be like a four or five minute video, of course, the only snippets they had was the stuff about sex or when she got jealous, things like that. And so knowing stuff like that, like if you're doing an interview, you should know how long that interview is. If you're doing a four minute clip, you should not be recording for four hours. That is way too long. That is giving them way too much stuff to be able to clip in whatever way they want to clip it. You'll come out saying something totally different (laughs) than uh, what you thought you were saying. Yeah. Like that New York Times article, they spoke to me for four hours and they spoke to my wife for another two. And the only things that they had in, like, like I said, the only words they had about from me were that I don't like people parking in my parking spot. And the only words they had from my wife were that she felt like her and my then girlfriend would be able to raise our kids without my help, which at the time, yeah, that was probably true. But, you know, that's six hours of content for less than three sentences. Yeah. And that's, and that's the problem because a lot of that stuff can be taken out of context too. Right. Whereas, uh, you were talking about the the parking spot thing. And I, I think that's a very valid thing to talk about in polyamory is we go through these, this is the thing that bothers me. And it's usually not what other people think it is. Like everybody always thinks it's the sex and it's things like, this is my parking space or those are my tomatoes. My, my big jealousy thing was uh, somebody else eating the tomatoes off of uh, Rigel's plate. My big jealousy moment, I thought I was immune to jealousy. And that was the moment where I was like, oh no, I, I need to take a walk. <laughs> but taken out of context, right? Like me with the whole tomatoes thing, right? And it was something small, but it was something that, you know, definitely triggered a large amount of jealousy in me for a couple minutes, given the right narrative that could be taken completely out of context, right? Like I use that as a teaching tool, like everybody gets jealous. And sometimes it's the little tiny things like someone eating tomatoes that you always got, but taken into the wrong hands. It's like, oh, you know, a polyamorous person for 18 years, almost killed partner over tomatoes. Like, (laughs) I mean, and, and that's that's the story they're looking for because it's it's way easier to tell that story than to say polyamorous people got together and watched Netflix. But at the same time, there are some things that are getting better, and there are you know I know some some shows, particularly not necessarily stuff on like Netflix and stuff like that, but internet series and things that are not only presenting good representations of polyamory, but also more diverse representations. I have the feeling you're on top of a couple of that. Is is there any of those that you would recommend? I really enjoyed. And like the thing about it is since, because it's all so indie, you're never guaranteed like more of this representation, but like, I know television-wise, I really like Compersion, Jackie Stone's uh, uh, YouTube series. There's a series called Unicorn Land on Vimeo that I really enjoyed. And like both of those are really short. Like You can watch all of Compersion in less than three hours. Like The first season, you can watch in less than three hours. The first season of Unicorn Land, you can actually watch in less than an hour. Wow. Yeah, it's like eight episodes, and each of them are like five to eight minutes. So you can watch through it really quickly. They have really decent representation racially, and they don't sugarcoat 
a lot of the negative, like some of the negative things, like they don't sensationalize the negativity. They point at it as negativity where like conversion is, a is about a family trying polyamory for the first time and they're rookies at it. So the mistakes are really cringeworthy, but they're not shown as just the norm. They're shown as mistakes. Whereas unicorn land, it's like a young woman out of a divorce and she's attempting to date couples just like to sort of find where she wants to land. And each couple she dates brings in its own situation. And the negative stuff is shown as negative. The positive stuff is shown as like really fulfilling to the main character. And that's actually, it's, it's actually a fun watch. And there's also 195 Lewis. I think that's also on Vimeo. It's queer and trans women of color, queer and trans black people. And it looks like it's made by the people who are starring in it. Like the representation is so important that, you know, and there are people who are actually doing it and showing it. So they're all good watches and like, I'd recommend all of them. Visually though, aside from poly role models, I really love the open photo project, Erica Capen's uh, photography project. It's just polyamorous people living their lives and under the camera. And Erica has she captures her work so beautifully. I've been in it a few times. I really love the way I look in her photographs. I really like the way other people look in her photographs. Like people I know. And it's like, oh, I know what you look like, but here's this photograph. And I'm really impressed by like somebody who spends significant time standing next to me. But like I'm staring at a picture of them instead of like the them of them. It's getting better. It takes people who are involved to actually create better representation because whenever it's other people, outsiders telling our stories, they always get it wrong or they're always trying to push an agenda. Like newspapers are just trying to sell newspapers and they're never really going to care about how well it looks. No. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And I think it's good that there's some better stuff getting out. I'm actually going to have to gonna have to go through and watch the series you were talking about. I feel like I saw a little bit of Unicorn Land. We were like skimming it, weren't we? Something with like somebody faking an orgasm or something. It was hilarious. Yes. Yeah. And I've, yeah. I've, 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 I've seen some of it. I think it's cute. <laughs> I'm like, oh, been there. <laughs> 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 we'll put we'll put that stuff in the show notes here. So it's interesting. So I do, and that, that the representation does kind of move into your whole race and polyamory and your whole book on that. How did you, I assume that you probably wound up speaking on that and, and stuff before you wound up writing the book. How did you kind of find yourself getting into talking about that topic? I wasn't just talking about the topic. I was just talking about myself, really. Um, I was talking about my own experiences a lot in terms of being a Black person, being polyamorous, being in polyamorous communities. And a then partner of mine, Rebecca Hiles, the Frisky Fairy, she was like, you should really be speaking about this in some educational spaces. So I was like, all right, well, you know, I don't know if that if, if that's my thing, but I'll I'll give it a try. And people were really listening. Like it, what I was saying really resonated. It resonated with people of color who had the same sort of experiences that I had. It resonated with white people who had contributed to some of the pain in some of the stories I was telling. Not always personally, sometimes personally, but people who were like organizers, people who were event coordinators, they were like, oh, wow, that's why Black people stopped showing up to my events. I didn't realize. And so I saw that Thorn Tree Press was looking for book ideas, and I actually pitched them something else. 
And they were like, okay, this is a good enough idea, but also we hear about this race and polyamory workshop you've been doing. Is there a way that you can turn that into a book? And so I was like, all right, well, let me see what I can do. And it turned into Love's Not Colorblind, which I hear people get a lot of value out of. And I'm really glad to have put that forward. It was It's literally just me talking about myself and other people talking about themselves and me sort of putting it into perspective. Like, this is what we encounter in these spaces. This is what keeps us from coming back to these spaces. This is why we need groups like Black and Poly, because sometimes you don't want to have to feel like an outsider among outsiders. Like you go to a polyamory community because you feel like an outsider in monogamous spaces. And then all of a sudden you're made to feel like an outsider again, because you're the black person, the one black guy at the, at the poly potluck. Yeah. So it's, it's a book about that. I'm really proud of it. It's a really excellent book. It, it's a conversation I've heard other people talk about before. I mean, as I said, we had Ruby Johnson on and I've heard the conversation in some other spaces as well. And I have to say, I think for me anyways, your book's done the best job of explaining some of those points that even after listening to other people, I'm still kind of like, I'm still not really getting what you're saying here. So I, I highly recommend that people read it, A. But I, I guess the easiest place to start is why is it an important topic? I mean, it's an important topic because it's 2019 and it's something that we've been fighting with. Like just the like the book itself isn't like a polyamory 101. It's it's a book that covers sort of life using polyamory as its lens. I'm sick of having to join any group, not just polyamorous groups, and not feeling welcome or not feeling understood or not feeling seen. And it's a book about that. Again, just using polyamory as its lens. So there are so many times where somebody hosts a potluck or a happy hour or a get together, a meetup. And then like, there are no people of color. When someone says like, Hey, where are the black people? Where are the people of color? They're like, well, everyone's welcome. I don't know why more people didn't show up. Like this is a book about why they didn't show up. This is a book about why that Queen of Spades tattoo isn't as welcoming as you think it is. This is why, you know, it's a book about why when someone puts like, hey, I'm not racist, I just don't date black people on their dating profile, why their quote unquote preference is complete bullshit and they're also racist. You know, this is what that book is about. So, yeah, I mean, let's dive into some of this stuff. So that answer that, uh, you know, when you said you go and you go to an organizer and you say there's no people of color here and they say everybody's welcome. Why is that not a good answer? Because if you're not proactively planning on making it a welcome space, like it's just putting up a welcome sign isn't enough. If you're not proactively making it an inclusive space, it's not going to happen on its own. Like if I say, all right, well, I'm having a, a happy hour. Everyone's invited. There are people who aren't going to be able to make it because of Childcare. There are people who are not going to be able to make it because of parking situations, location, accessibility. There are people who aren't going to be able to make it because of the venue isn't close enough to mass transit. There are people who won't be able to afford the cover charge or be able to afford whatever it is the activity is. And if you're dealing with people who are traditionally marginalized by way of class, and Black people are traditionally marginalized by way of class, there's going to be less black people there. It's easy enough to say like, okay, well, this place doesn't have a ramp. This place doesn't have an elevator. People with like disabilities might not be able to make it in. That's an easy thing to understand. If you say marginalized by way of race, marginalized by way of class, 
that's something people are going to fight against even harder. It's sort of a thing that happens where like people who are loud and proud about their polyamory, people who are loud and proud about their queerness, when you ask them about race, people get quiet. People get really quiet, really uncomfortable because you have to address the source of that discomfort. Like the, the source is white supremacy. We live in a country that is built and made strong on the broken bodies of people of color, of black people, of brown people, of red people. And if you don't address the, the way that that's pervasive in every aspect of our lives, it's not going to get any better. So you have to keep that kind of thing in mind when you're planning these things, when you're building your community, when you're filling out your dating roster, this is something that's going to come up, even if it's not putting your face. So yeah, that, that was one thing that I found kind of interesting in your book is, a, is the you have some talk about dating. And you know, when people talk about dating preferences and, you know, like I prefer dating this race, I have a preference with that race and how that's not really valid. Can you talk about that for a second? Yeah. The way we form attractions, and there's a lot of scientific evidence about this, the way we form attractions is at least partially based on perceived social status. And like you look at somebody, you have a snap judgment about who they are and what they are, and then it feeds into whether or not you find them attractive. So when someone's like, well, I don't find black people attractive, who are you talking about? Are you talking about me or Lenny Kravitz or Idris Elba or Barack Obama or, you know, or any of these, like, or Cory Booker or any of these different black people who look vastly different, if the only thing we have in common is black, there's something else happening there. And that's something that needs to be acknowledged. Where like if you could look at like the cast of Black Panther and not find those people attractive enough to date, there is something else happening there. And it needs to be addressed not just from a dating standpoint, but also because Dating doesn't exist in a vacuum. If you could look at those folks and find them as less than just based on dating, you're going to do that on other stuff as well. Like that's going to come up in terms of work. That's going to come up in terms of friendship. That's going to come up in terms of like safety and danger. We all have that friend where it's like, okay, we can, we're cool. We can hang out. We can go to lunch or whatever. But if I'm ever in trouble, I'm not going to call that person. There is somebody who is saying, well, I've got, you know, oh, well, Kevin, he's my black friend who I don't think of in that same way. And I would never trust in a dangerous situation. They could point to me and try to use me as an example. Like, no, we're not friends. And that's like, they're the same kind of person that's like, oh, well, I'm not racist, but also I'm not dating black folks. I'm not dating people of color, whatever it is. Like it's there's there's more to it than that. It's not just a simple matter of who you will and won't date. It's who you do and don't see as a person, who you do and don't see as a complete person. So I guess I have a question as a female bodied person. And it took me years to figure out that I was bisexual. I identified as a lesbian for a long time. How is that different? Would that make me like secretly having some sort of issues with men? I'm just I'm just trying to play devil's advocate a little bit. Like, how is that different? I mean, I feel like the devil's got enough advocates, <laughs> but also there's a difference in power dynamics there where like, even if I was to say like, I won't date white people, I have to deal with oppression from white people on a regular basis. That's not a matter of perceived social status or a matter of attractiveness or what have you. That's a matter of personal safety. And for you, that could be the same. 
the number one cause of death in women is men. I mean, I don't know if that's true. That's just, a, a, that, I don't think that's a real statistic. So don't quote me on that. But men are generally dangerous to women. Like I actually wrote something recently that I haven't actually put out yet about that. Like a friend of mine, when I expressed some interest in a friend, she had to decline, but she had to make sure that she gave me like all these solid reasons for declining because she doesn't know whether or not I'm someone who's going to respect her no casually, which I did, or if I'm someone who's going to like lose my shit and, you know, and get angry or violent because that's a thing that men do. So it's a very real possibility that the power dynamics work in that same way where I know a lot of queer folks, a lot of trans folks who are like, I will not date cis people. I don't think of them as cis phobic because that's not a thing. I think of them as some, as people who are concerned rightly with their personal safety. So it's funny when I, when I saw that thing in your book about the, the people who talk about preference, I, I was, I kind of like, I had two thoughts on it. Like one was first off, I, I don't, this isn't something that I experienced personally, but like, I was like, well, I don't know, like at what point is it okay to tell somebody, like we all have different, different physical qualities that we're attracted to, like it's okay to be attracted to these physical qualities, but these ones you can't have a preference on. And then, you know, and then the other thing that got me was the thing that you were saying now, actually, which was, I was like, yeah, but you know, like, like I said, for me, that's not really a thing. I go with that theory of if somebody's race is the reason you're not dating them, you're not paying attention to all the other things. I'm personally more on that page myself. You have something in the book similar where you're like, you know, but it's if a person of color doesn't want to date a white person, then that's I was. Yeah, I was I was a little curious about that. I felt like that was a bit of a one thing and then the other kind of thing. I mean, yeah, but it's not, though. I mean, the power dynamics don't work in the same direction. They don't go back and forth. We live in America. We live in a society that marginalizes folks in a certain way. Like right now, it's Pride Month. And there are people talking about straight pride parades. But why? Why would we need a straight pride parade when there is no one marginalizing straight folks? I have to say that that's something that you really and when so when I said there were some things that I've seen you explain that you've explained in ways that have been better than anybody else that I've heard, that was one thing I have to say that you really, really kind of clicked for me in the book. And I think it's worth talking about is the idea of why there are groups out there that are specific for like people of color who are poly, right? Because I think the general thinking on this stuff a lot, like when you're you're first coming into this stuff is, look, we're all kind of a marginalized community. And why do we want to divide ourselves further? Like that doesn't seem to make sense. And I do have, and, and so can you talk about that for a little bit? Because that was, that was something in the book that I actually really felt that you did a great job of explaining was why that it is still important, even in like a a community where we're already kind of a step out to have groups that are for specific kinds of people and why it makes sense to have those kinds of groups. The way I explain it in the book is if you have like a, a black student union or a, a, like a gay straight alliance group or something on a college campus, that they're speaking towards needs that a global group, which is almost always going to be centered around white people and whiteness and straightness and like just like the groups of privilege, they're going to speak to concerns that aren't always going to be addressed by a more global or more supposedly mainstream group. Where if I'm on a college campus, you know, HBCUs aside, me as a black person having my needs met on a college campus, the general student body might just miss some things that a black student union will not miss. 
and will bring to the General Assembly. And I've used the example of, and I don't remember the guy's name off the top of my head, but like a white guy at Towson University tried to start a white student alliance. Now, Towson's student body at the time was like 66% white. Towson's faculty base was like 70% white. And this guy wanted to add more white voices to that assembly. And of course, like they use really benign language saying, well, we're just trying to, you know, keep things fair and even and equal. Meanwhile, that guy was like the head of like a thinly veiled white supremacist group. The actual guy, I remember like after I wrote that into the book, that guy got spotlighted on camera, punching a black guy at a, at a Trump rally, like harassing a black, a black person attending a Trump rally right before Trump got elected. So like, it's something that only people of privilege will point out in that way when they're like, well, why would we want to dice up our group any further? It's because you don't understand the needs that aren't being met by this group as a whole. And so that's what ends up being sort of the conversation and why we need these separate spaces, because otherwise there are just needs that won't be met. I started hosting like Black and POC exclusive events at my home. And just basic stuff like getting together, watching a a series on Netflix, watching a couple of movies together, and there'll just be these cultural competency questions that pop up that none of us want to have to stop to explain to someone who didn't have the same lived experience. Something basic like that makes a group feel welcome. Just being able to speak a language and have a culture that you don't have to educate people on in the meantime, in between time. That matters. That that makes people decide whether or not they want to be somewhere or not be somewhere. And when it comes to something like polyamory, where the representation is so skewed against people of color, just having a, a space to be polyamorous without feeling further marginalized is something that will keep people in polyamory rather than out and about doing their own thing and screwing it up without any you know without any resources or community or fellowship around them. Kind of then the the counter argument then to somebody who says, well, we need spaces for people who are poly and of color is why don't we have spaces? We don't have spaces for people who are poly and white. And that that was well, and that right, exactly. And that's what I was gonna say. And that's where that that's one place that I said I think your book did an excellent does an excellent job of talking about that is but you do, that's that's the traditional poly spaces, right? Or the traditional college campus or that kind of thing. Like the representation is already there. Somebody said asked me that that same thing at my first time I gave a race and polyamory workshop and that was poly living Philadelphia. Somebody said, well, how come we don't have like a white polyamory space? And I'm like, you are currently in the white polyamory (laughs) space. Like this, this conference is the white polyamory space. This conference that has eight people of color because I counted because it was that easy to count is that space. So if you're looking for it, welcome. Yeah, I I was going to say that that example, I think, makes a lot of sense for me, especially dealing with our our son back in middle school started a GSA. Yeah. And it's funny because our, our son's actually a, a straight cisgender male, which is... Who felt the need to come out to you as straight? Who felt the need to come out to me as straight, which I thought was beautiful because he was like, I feel like if every everybody should be able to come out about who they are. I have decided to be straight or I have decided to be bisexual. Like everybody should be able to have a choice because he was involved in student government, things like that. He wanted to create a gay straight alliance 
be it his moms are bisexual, things like that. And he had a bunch of friends who also wanted it, but they hadn't been in this whole student government thing. So he kind of was like the pusher of it, but not the only person doing it. And the school called and said, well, why do they need to have these GSA meetings? The kids who aren't gay or like friends of gay people don't have to have a space to have meetings. And I was like, because that's every day at school. Like, (laughs) so I think that makes a lot more sense when you look at it in that perspective. Like when you can see like, okay, this is what it typically looks like. This is for giving those people who don't have a space, space. Yeah, like I went to Howard University, uh, a historically black college and university. I used the I used the term HBCU earlier, so that explains that. And every once in a while, like when I mention that to somebody, if it comes up in conversation, they're like, "Well, how come we don't have historically white colleges and universities?" And I just have to look at them, like, which college isn't a historically <laughs> white college university? You know, which which television network isn't white entertainment television? Like, if you've got a problem with Telemundo and BET, let me tell you about CBS. You're gonna it's gonna blow your mind. People who are interested in that, like you have people of color who are like you're talking about these groups that are catered around people of color. That sounds pretty good. How do people go about finding these groups? It depends on the group. I know Black and Poly has a website. I think it's just blackandpoly.org. There's also a Facebook group that's always popping. There's several thousand members in this group that that uh, people can jump into and you know engage in. And it's just a matter of like everything's online now. There's also like groups you can find on Meetup.com or if you got the Meetup app on your on your phone or what have you. Like just looking up black and poly, looking up polyamory and seeing what comes up in your local area, there's always a lot to find. And really it could just be a matter of asking around where I've had people just message me because I do poly role models. There are people who message me just sort of randomly. Like they'll see my name and say, like, hey, that's that guy. What's up with this group? Is there a group? Can you tell me about it? Like I'm in this space, I'm in this country, I'm in this state. Can you help me here? And if I've got the time, I can always like lead them to somebody. I can give them a name. I can point them in the right direction. Sometimes I can, sometimes I can't. But asking around it never hurts. How common are groups like that? I know with like Black and Poly has chapters all over the country. But what's actually really awesome is that you can just start one, even if it's not that. Like even if it's not like an official Black and Poly group. Even if it's just you know what. We started something here in Philadelphia where like we do have a black and poly chapter, but one day me and a friend decided to start a group that was just like Philadelphia of color. And we, we just started adding people and those people started adding more. And now we've got like a few hundred people who are in this group. You can do the same. Just identify a need, start a thing, and people show up because whatever need you've got, there are hundreds of people who have that same need who need somebody to take the initiative if they won't do it themselves. Yeah, I think that's one another thing that we agree on is the value of community. That's something that I, I've kind of grasped from some of your writings and stuff that you feel pretty pretty strongly about is how important it is to have a community of like-minded people around you when you're on these kinds of journeys. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there are so many mistakes. Like I've made a lot of mistakes in my polyamory and I talk about them ad nauseum because I want other people to hear 
what mistakes they shouldn't be making. And the same way other people have made mistakes that I've like, you know, I've read in books, read in articles, seen on Facebook forums. And it's just like, wow, that guy screwed up. I don't want to screw up that way. I'm going to change. I'm going to do the work to not make those same mistakes. And hopefully that goes around because like, Unlike monogamy, polyamory, we don't have centuries of modeling and movies and media to to just use it as an example. Right now, we just have each other and we're trying to create resources, but it's it's not enough. One thing that I know you talk some about, actually, I wouldn't mind talking about for a minute, is creating community. Because it's funny. It's something that we've talked to a couple people on the show about before, but I feel like you actually have a lot to add here. Because I've seen some of the stuff that you've said about it. So like when you have people who are like, okay, you know, I live in wherever the place may be. And either there's nothing polyamorous around here at all, or maybe there is, but maybe I want to start a group that's more focused on people of color or something like that. What are some tips that you'd give people for getting something started? Jump in with both feet. There's never going to be enough planning to get it perfectly right the first time. So jump in with both feet and get people around you to help people who have the same vision that you have. If I decide like right now to make a group of like polyamorous gamers, and I'm just making that up off the top of my head because that's probably a group that already exists. I would go on Facebook right now and make the group and then I'd announce it and say, hey, by the way, I made this group called polyamorous gamers. And maybe 10 people join. And then maybe those 10 people add a person here or there. But like I jump right in because the biggest thing that slows us down is the fear that we're going to screw up. So jump in, screw up, and then make it right. Like be prepared to fix things as you go. That That's good as far as a Facebook group. But what is it about as far as getting people face-to-face? For me, I know with uh, with the events that I do, it's just a matter of figuring out what I feel like doing. And then inviting people to come do that. Like one day I was just wandering around and I was like, I really like Starship Troopers. I love that movie. I don't know if it's good or not. It's probably terrible, but I love it. So I want to watch Starship Troopers with friends. And so I put out that I was going to watch the works of Paul Verhoeven. And we ended up watching Starship Troopers, Total Recall, and RoboCop, the first one. And I just put up, I made an event page and said, hey, I'm going to be watching these movies. Anybody want to come through, bring some food, we can barbecue, we can hang out. And next thing you know, I got 20 people in my living room watching these movies with me, laughing, eating, and talking shit. And it was fantastic. Are you sure you weren't just trying to filter out the uncool people by seeing who wouldn't come watch those? I mean, that's also, you know, it's a, it's a benefit. You know, you cross, cross names off the list. What are, you, what are you trying to say? What are you trying to say, Rigel? I'm, I'm, I'm not a big Starship Trooper fan. You trying to say I'm not cool now? Irreconcilable differences. Uh, no, that, that's Polly. You can go watch it with somebody else. There we go. <laughs> you can go watch that with somebody else. Oh, shit. So, um... I feel like we could start going on about this stuff, about, uh, about how do you not like Starship Troopers? I hate Starship Troopers. <laughs> I do. I hate that movie. It's so bad. You're missing the deeper meaning. I, I know. Missing- I understand the deeper meaning. And, and you're clearly not paying enough attention to Denise Richards. Uh, no, no. Okay. Denise Richards <laughs> is cute, but I can watch her in a not as annoying setting as Starship Troopers. Mm. I don't know you anymore. Um, I do not know Mm, that movie. Anyways. So, and yes, I think there are some, I know there's some kinky and gamer groups. There is. 
Yeah, yeah, I've, I've seen it. I've seen a couple around. I wish I didn't feel like such an imposter in kinky spaces. I'd I'd join every one of them. Uh, you know, it's it's one of those. It gets into the whole discussion of what do you define as kinky, and yeah, I think people get way too uptight. Everybody's kinky. It's just what various your, levels. Yeah, yeah. And it's I feel the same way about kink as I feel about queerness. Like I'm here. But also, I feel like I'm 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 not doing enough. Like I'm I haven't been here long enough to uh to take a place at the table. Hey, this is kind of a side question, by the way, just off something you said earlier, because I got the impression from reading your book that you identified as like cis hat that kind of stuff. Is that because you you said something earlier that made me think that maybe you don't identify as heterosexual anymore? Has that changed a bit? Or yeah, yeah, yeah. I um it wasn't really something that I had planned on just all of a sudden some of the guys in my circle became attractive enough to like date and or fuck and so i was like oh well here's some new information i just learned about myself so i am no longer identifying as straight it, w- it was a good 38 and a half year run and now <laughs> now not so much that's it it's all on the bell curve right it's just where we sit on it yeah, I gave my heterosexuality like a lot of thought where I, I don't feel like I was straight by default. Like I I thought I gave it a lot of thought back in like high school. I put a lot of a lot of uh, introspection into it and straight was where I believed myself to be. And then 20 years after that, all of a sudden it's like, oh, wait, no, different things. So here we are. Yeah, so I'm actually having like a identity crisis. Yeah, I, I, I'm having a, a a little bit of a for myself struggle because when I was a teenager, I was okay. I'm a lesbian because I'm I'm not really attracted to men as I mentioned earlier, yeah, and or at least cis men. And so I I was like, okay, I know this about myself. Then I started. I had a girlfriend, and she was like, hey, let's have some threesomes. And I was like, cool, we can do stuff with dudes. Well, you can do stuff with dudes, and I can just be there. And then like I met a few dudes that I were like, oh, they're they're kind of cute. So I'm bisexual. I made that choice, right? Like I was like, I identify as you this. lost your lesbian friends. I lost my lesbian friends because wow. that was yeah no because that happens. No, it, people it, are serious. Some people yeah, are serious. About I, that. I was yeah. no longer a lesbian, so I couldn't hang out with the cool lesbians, which was devastating as a as a teenager. So I did this whole fighting to be bisexual and to be acknowledged as bisexual. And inside of the LGBT community, like bisexuality was something that was not like really acknowledged. Like even though there was the B and the LGBTQ, it's still like you just haven't figured yourself out yet. You, you got that from other fellow LGBTQ folks. And so it was like something that I, I very much was like, this is my identity. This is who I am. And now I'm like, well... I think I'm more queer and I think I'm more homo flexible occasionally under certain circumstances. So I'm I'm having difficulty with this. Like I took so much on of that identity of like, I'm a bisexual person that I don't want to let go of it. Yeah. If that makes yeah, any sense. <laughs> I've got a, a partner where she identified as lesbian for most of her life. But then like in the last couple of years, she started hooking up with dudes and we joke around about it where now we're both hooking up with dudes. 
And she's like, the straighter I become, the gayer you become. And that's our joke. But also, like, I know that that was an identity that, that really mattered to her. And like, being straight was an identity that really mattered to me, not in a straight pride way, but in a, this is a privilege that I have that I can action to the benefit of my queer friends. But now I am the queer friend. So I don't really know where that leaves me. Like, I don't know what my place is in that struggle anymore. You know, it, it's I don't want to say funny, you know, it's, I think it's one thing when that struggle is internal and then like, it's another thing where people start getting, so I, you were talking about it. My first experience with this was with somebody that we dated who, have you heard the phrase gold star lesbian before? I have. And I hear lots of transphobic things about that thing. Uh, Oh, okay. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. Yeah, But like, it, it was like, so it was like, like she, you know, was a lesbian and then we started sleeping together and then she lost her gold star and then she lost her lesbian friends and she lost her credibility. And it was, yeah, it's, that's, that's a wreck when that shit happens. And it's ridiculous. Oof. So, I mean, we talked some about like, you know, forming groups and why it's important to have groups that are for specific groups, like people of color, et cetera, et cetera. I want to talk a little bit about how to make existing groups like that aren't, aren't specialized in that direction, more diverse and more accepting and get some input on that. Like, I, I think we, we touched on a little bit earlier, but I mean, I guess, like I said, my first question there is, why is that important? Especially if you're, if you're already talking about having groups where, you know, that are for people of color, why is it important to make changes in the groups that are already there? Because the groups that are already there almost always give themselves the title of inclusive and welcoming. And so if that that's something that they already say that they are. So I don't feel like it's overstepping to sort of to push that to make it a reality, even though like people already claim it. And like the the way to make those changes, you can change leadership. That's really important. Changing leadership, changing the dynamics, but also having people who have a particular privilege raise the issue. Where me as a black guy, when I say like, hey, where are the black people? People are going to look at me as a malcontent. People are going to look at me as a, as a firebrand. I've been pushed out of spaces for doing exactly that. And granted, I'm not always going to be super nice about it, you know, but I'm going to bring it up. Like, I'm not going to be quiet about it. I'm not going to let people point to me and say, oh, well, we get black people here because look, it's Kevin. He's there in the corner. So, you know, we don't have to work too hard because that's the thing that's happened. If white folks show up and say, but where are the people of color? How come we don't get black people here at this event? Then it's like, all right, well, there's a social capital that's going to, that's sort of ingrained there. That's going to carry further than I will. So part of the reason why I said like, you know, I, I, I was invested in being straight because me being a straight guy, I could speak to straight people and carry more weight than like when my trans friends are like, when my queer and trans friends are like, hey, treat us properly. And my straight friends are like, nah, they're going to listen to me more than they're going to listen to to them. People speaking out about it is definitely one thing that can be done. What else would you say besides the leadership and the speaking out about it? Like people using the space to speak out about the groups needed to be more inclusive. What are some other things? Asking a lot of questions about the group, about its dynamics, about its planning. Uh, and I, I touched on this before, but like 
where is this event going to be held? Where is it going to be held? What part of town is it? How much does it cost to get in? How much does it cost to, to take part in an activity? Is what, what activities are we planning around? Like when you start asking these sort of questions, it changes the, the dynamic of the group. And as a, an example I've used a bunch of times is like there was this bowling night that, I, that my local community held. And when I went to the place, I'm struggling to parallel park, which I'm actually pretty decent at. Like, I'm not great at parallel parking, but I'm good enough. But as I'm struggling to parallel park, I'm like, there are people who are not going to come here just because of the parallel parking situation. And then I get to the venue and there's like this really steep stairway down to a basement bowling alley. And I'm like, I'm able-bodied and this is a lot. There are people who are not able-bodied who are just going to look at this stairway and, and leave. There are people who cannot attend this event, whether whether they want to or not. And like, if you're not paying attention to all of these factors, like for me, the stuff that I do at my events, it's pretty simple. It's like, hey, come watch movies. And I keep everything on the first floor. It's a fairly accessible thing, but even... For the accessibility that my home lacks, I can't really change that because it's my home. If I'm hosting something out in the city, though, these are all things that I have to spend a lot of time thinking about. Like, how much smoke is there going to be in the air? Because there are people who have respiratory problems. There are people who have scent sensitivities who aren't going to be able to attend if this is a place that's going to be full of smoke. These are things that I have to factor in every time that I plan an event, because if I don't, I'm cutting people out whether I want to or not, whether I know it or not. I don't think a lot of people give as much thought to the location as you're talking about. No, no, they don't. And I don't know how much people do this anymore, but I was going to say, especially when it's you're having to shop around for a friendly venue. I'm not sure that that's as much of an issue anymore as it used to be, though. Trying to find a place that isn't going to boot you guys out as soon as somebody talks about polyamory or kink. Yeah, like we we ran a, a social group in Hanover, Pennsylvania, because we're, you know, right. At the time, there was nothing between Baltimore and Philly. Yeah, there was a big open space there and just trying to find a venue that would allow us to meet and have a private like space was a, was a, was a big was a big headache because we wanted to be, you know, we wanted to be truthful because we didn't want to be there and be kicked out because somebody overheard a conversation of the sorts and we needed our own private space and there was a lot of venues that wouldn't just would not allow us to be there so it ended up being there wasn't a lot to choose from, I guess was a, a best way of putting that. Yeah, and not everywhere is going to accommodate. There is this really, really great conference called uh, Playground up in Toronto, and it actually gets mentioned a couple of times in Love's Not Colorblind. It was actually very important to my development as doing the work that I do. And the last time they had that event last year, the hotel pumps a fragrance through their events. And it's like, I think the game plan is that you pump this fragrance in and it makes you it like it triggers um, like memories so that anytime you go to this hotel, you feel like you're coming home because you remember this smell. Some nonsense. But yeah, I was like, what? Yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> apparently, there are a lot of hotels that, that, that do this sort of thing. They push a particular smell through the lobby. But like the fragrance was harmful to a couple of attendees of the conference who had scent sensitivities. And when they brought it up, the hotel refused to do anything about it to the point where when the organizers were like, hey, we're trying to have this uh, event again next year, the hotel was like, 
well, we got some bad reviews because of this fragrance thing. So no, you're not allowed to come back here anymore. So now that's an educational space. That's an educational and a social and a networking space lost because of accessibility issues. If this hotel is willing to lose an entire event that brings in a lot of money, some local restaurant, some local bar, they're not going to have a problem with like launching people to the curb. They're just going to launch people to the curb. Yeah, but I do think I do think that was kind of stuff that you started going into was a really good list. Like so as far as physical accessibility, as far as cost, as far as location to public transportation, noise concerns and smoke concerns and that kind of stuff. Anything else you'd add to that list? Because I actually do think this is I think this is pretty practical stuff when people are talking about how to make an event more inclusive just in in the venue selection. Also, who are the organizers talking to? Like I've been to events before where I didn't know who the organizer was because like it was like happy hours or what have you. Like, you know, a meetup, you already know who's going to be running the meetup because they're the person doing the most talking. But like if it's a happy hour, maybe I don't know who the organizer of this happy hour is. Maybe they're not speaking to me. You know, if I'm somebody brand new to a happy hour or a mixer and the organizers don't say something to me or like make it known or say something to like to just new people in general, I'm not going to feel like I want to be there. And that's something that happens a lot. People get really clicky. That's human nature. I get it. But if you're an organizer, that's a responsibility that you also have. Or reaching out to people who don't come back to things. In times where I've been an organizer, in times where I've been an administrator for for certain groups, I've reached out to people who disappeared and just said like, hey, I noticed you didn't come back this week. I noticed you didn't come back this month. What's up with that? Is everything okay? Is there anything I can do? And just that personal touch reaching out and understanding where your flaws are and figuring out ways to shore them up that that matters it it's it it matters it's really valuable to the people who need these kind of spaces yeah no i think that's all really good you have any other input on that you spent a long time running a group <laughs> you know one of the things you pointed out is is checking in with with folks and getting that feedback loop is is really important I've done a lot of scheduling of groups and running groups over the years. And I think one of the biggest areas that organizers sort of fall short is not listening to the people that they're making the groups for. I had a situation maybe about a year, year and a half ago, where some queer black folks felt harmed in a space that I was running. Like it didn't have anything to do with me. I wasn't like, you know, I wasn't part of the situation, but they felt harmed and they all left. And I reached out to all of those folks and I talked to them. Like, we didn't always agree on everything like that happened in that situation, but we spoke and we got on the same ground and I was able to welcome them back in eventually. But like everybody else, including the people who had harmed them, who had caused that situation, they found every excuse to not reach out, to not have that conversation when people just needed to feel heard and and and, and respected. And if, if you're not going to do that, you've got to question what you're doing in a space of leadership in general. Like, I know that it's not easy. I know that it's volunteer work. I know that it's thankless and tiring and exhausting, but it is what it is. And if you're going to jump in, then jump in. And if not, you know, you can vacate the position of somebody who's more suited to it. Yeah. So so let's talk about this leadership thing for a second, actually. So like I said, I, I, I found I really enjoyed your book. I found it really insightful. And there but there were there were a couple places in there where I was kind of like, er, 
Like, I'm not sure I agree with that. And this, this is one of those. So I wanted to talk to you about this. So I got the impression from your book that you think that a good way to make a group more inclusive is to swap the leadership out for that group. Can you, like, am I right about that? Can you talk about that a little bit? So when something that happened in Philadelphia is that the founders of the group, uh, of our local group here, they weren't trying to start like a community. They were just hanging out with friends and having potlucks and they made a Facebook about it and a, a community sort of sprung up underneath them. At some point, the group got a reputation for being unwelcoming the queer folks, unwelcoming the people of color, and for harboring abusers. So we were able to sort of force an election of new leadership. And when we did that, we made it a point to say, like, we need like a certain amount of non-men in these leadership positions. We need a certain amount of people of color in these leadership positions. Because then it changed the thought process behind the decisions being made for that group, for the events being made in that group. Like we didn't have any POC exclusive or queer exclusive events until we had a change in leadership. We didn't have spaces that were like focused on those needs that weren't being met until we forced a a change in leadership. It's like if you've got a bunch of able-bodied people in a room trying to make decisions about why people with disabilities don't show up to their events, they're not going to spot it. They're not going to be as mindful about the needs that aren't being met. There's um. A conference that I really enjoy, Southwest Love Fest out in Tucson, and that's like the end of March or early April every year. And some of the organizers there are single parents. And they're like, well, we're not going to have this conference without the ability to bring our kids. So we've got to make child care a priority. And they have a child care solution at this conference. Very few conferences actually have child care set up. And that's because very few conferences are run by single parents or people who don't have the means to to have babysitting, or people who don't have small kids who are in need of babysitting. Just having that identity represented in their leadership changed the dynamics of the conference to the benefit of every attendee. And that has to be something that's uh, brought up in general. Like You need to have identity represented other than those of mass privilege. Yeah, so I've got I've got two things with that, I guess. One is more a practical end, which, well, I guess they're both kind of the practical end. You know, one is, I mean, I think, you know, like when you started talking about single parents, like I think it's it's probably impossible, especially for smaller groups to have like every possible different identity represented. But I don't I don't think that's even so much so much a thing, because I, I, I think that as a, in a general sense, like if you've got a large group and you have no people of color in, in positions of power, no women in positions of power, that kind of thing, it's. Definitely, you could be better served by doing that. Where I, I get questioning this, this idea is, I'd say if you, if you have a couple people running a group, then all things being equal, like the leadership being equal, it would be good to have a good representation among that. I, I think where I, I start questioning this is, you know, we've run groups before, we've been involved in groups, we've been involved in running groups. And, you know, you talked a while ago about how it's a thankless job, it's hard, it sucks. And people, a lot of people don't want to do it. And yeah, like I'll, I'll use Spank, good old Spank, which is funny because you're actually wearing the old Spank shirt of Hanover was the Hanover group that we we created. 
And at the time, nobody wanted to step up to take a leadership role. And I was asking for it like constantly. That's the point I was going to make is like, I think the problem is it's not all equal. So like, I I feel like if you're if you're in this thing where it's like we want to swap this group out to get more representation, I think that's dandy as long as there's people who you have other qualified people who are going to step up and run the group well. But I think a lot of times, especially with these volunteer positions, I've seen a number of groups. I mean, Spanx one where Cassie actually had medical issues going on and it was a group people loved and we could not find anybody else at all willing to volunteer to run it. They wanted to come to the happy hours. They wanted to do all the fun things, but nobody wanted to take the responsibilities of running the thing. And then like, you know, I've seen other groups where it's the TNG group in Baltimore is a great one where the leadership aged out and other people took over. But the group's gone way downhill because the new leadership just isn't as dedicated as the old leadership. And I worry that you know, when we're talking about swapping people out, we risk destabilizing groups because there's there's just really not a lot of people out there who are willing to volunteer or who even if they are willing to volunteer are going to do a good job. So I'm curious as to your thoughts on that. These are still just social groups. They're still just social groups. They're still just like volunteer efforts and, and communities. Like, I don't think they need to last the test of time like i don't think they need to be groups that last forever at the same level of quality forever i think that they can change and shift sometimes people need more out of them and sometimes people need less out of them and that's okay you know in the year 3000 we don't need people finding you know modern day hieroglyphics of the polyamory community that existed in you know what was once known as philadelphia it just is what it is they can rise and they can fall and that's fine you know the impermanence is okay i don't know if i agree with that i mean i i I agree with that from from a level of yeah i mean the groups change and stuff like that but i don't agree with that from a perspective of that really playing into what i'm talking about because like talking about like you know our group in pa for example it wasn't that people stopped needing it it was just that nobody else was willing to run the damn thing I think the same thing in Baltimore with the TNG there. It wasn't that people, there was suddenly any less of a demand for the TNG. It was just that the new people weren't doing as good a job of organizing it. So people didn't want to come. Yeah. And then somebody else is going to pick up that slack. Not always, though. It might not be a seamless transition, but someone is eventually going to say, this is lacking some things. I want to bring this back. Sometimes things fall apart and I'm, I'm okay with that. Yeah, I'm just I'm not sure that I'm like I said, like, I definitely think it's good to get representation in the leadership of these groups. I'm just I guess where I where I take a step back from that is when you have a group, particularly a smaller group where you may not have a lot of people in the leadership. I feel like trying to accomplish making a group more diverse by swapping leadership out who may be doing a good job running a group with people who may tank it. To me, I mean, that that seems kind of on the whole not beneficial to the community. But I mean, it, it's certainly a case by case basis thing, right? Like, like I said, like if you have a larger group where you can afford to swap some people in who maybe aren't going to be as dedicated to running stuff or you have really qualified people who really want to do it, who are going to do a good job running it, who can bring in a level of diversity. I think that's great, but I don't think that's always the case. And when that's not the case, I question doing that and potentially shutting down the group for a whole area. When you say people who are doing a good job of running the group, running it for who? Because if there are people who already feel unwelcome by the space, 
you know, that may or may not be able to hold a leadership position, then like they don't feel like you're doing a good job running the group. They feel like the group is unwelcoming and potentially harmful. So who like so who are we protecting in this uh, in this defensive leadership? You know. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm, I, are you saying it's not possible to do an objectively good or bad job of running a group? I mean, if you have a group that has 60 members and new leadership takes over and does a shit job of organizing and it goes down to five people, I mean, don't you think that that's objectively not great leadership? There's, there's a, a funny joke about time travel where someone's like, yeah, you know, if you ever invent time travel, black people will never want to go back in time, at least not in America, because all of American history with black people. So like there are people who are like, yay, let's make America great again. America has been great this whole time, except for now, apparently. Meanwhile, as a black guy, I'm like, but when has America been great? When has it been great for me? So there isn't like an objectively good job. There's people who, who will relate and people who won't relate. And who are we trying to support and prop up in whether or not we keep the establishment as is versus whether or not we change that establishment. I, I mean, I feel like it's pretty easy to see if you use a little bit of an edge case. And I, I don't even want to say an edge case because it's something that I've seen before. But like if you have a group that has 50 people who regularly come out and you have, I mean, let's say for the sake of argument, you have 10 people of color who regularly come out and you swap leadership out. Now the group shit organized. They're not running every week people fall off and now you have five people coming out, period. I mean, I would think that objectively, whoever you were, that would be less useful to you and less useful to the community. And that's sort of where the problem occurs, that people feel like they need to maintain it, even if it marginalizes other folks. Meanwhile, those folks who are being marginalized are like, I don't need it to be maintained as is. And this um this this interview this this podcast there's been a lot of you trying to find faults with one aspect of the book or one aspect of what i speak about or another but also like you're coming from a perspective that is protected by privilege you know whereas i'm not so there's been a lot of like well maybe can i play devil's advocate what if we use this hypothetical but like this isn't hypothetical for me because i know what it feels like doing it one way versus doing it another. Yeah, I mean, I don't think, uh, as I said, I found the book useful, but I think there's some things in there, as I said, that I, I have questions about. And this is certainly one. And I don't actually think this is a hypothetical talking about what happens when you swap the leadership out of groups. I think it's something that actually happens. And I think it's something we should be able to talk about objectively. You're not going to find what you feel is objective there because you're finding what you're describing as objectively good for me is not good. So it's really a matter of what you what you feel like you need to maintain versus what you feel like you'd lose in a change. Well, I don't. I mean, we're not running a group anymore. I don't feel like I'm going to lose anything personally. Well, right? No, I don't mean personally. I just mean in 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 the examples that we're giving. And and this is I guess I guess this is just where I'm unclear because I got to be honest. I didn't expect this question to go this way. Like. And I'm, I'm actually not really understanding where you're coming from with this at this point as far as the leadership change. So is what you're saying that you should swap out for more diverse leadership and that would be positive even if there's no longer really a group to speak of? I guess that's where I'm not really sure what you're saying at this point. Because like I said, I agree with you that it's certainly a desirable thing. I'm just saying it may not be a desirable thing if you have nobody 
who's going to step up and actually handle the group well. And it sounds like you're saying that it's still desirable even in that case. I'm saying that these structures are impermanent one way or the other. And if something has to fall apart, then that's okay. Like I, like I'm not gonna, like I'm not gonna cry. I'm not gonna cry over it if something has to fall apart in the process. And if it's a matter of like we can keep this group up and it's gonna be great from our perspective, but terrible from somebody else's perspective, you know, the loss of that group doesn't seem like a big deal to me if it's terrible from that perspective. Where like I spent a couple of years feeling like I was the token black guy in Philadelphia's polyamory community. Like I felt like I was one of very few people of color. So if if there was a change in leadership or if there was any amount of change and that community fell apart, it wouldn't have been a loss for me. It would have been a loss to the white folks who felt the most comfortable there. It would have been a loss for them. But for me, it's like, all right, well, I didn't need this. This wasn't helping me. This wasn't you know, community. This was just people getting together in a space that made me feel even further marginalized. No, and I get that. I'm just saying, I think, uh, and, and I think in that situation, you know, I understand where you're coming from with that. I'm just saying that there could be groups where you have people of color there who maybe are feeling like it's a community and, you know, they are feeling like it's something that they, they're enjoying and that's positive for them. And that, like I said, if you're swapping out leadership and you don't have anybody there to step in and that group tanks, that could be detrimental for them as well. And that's where I'm just a little confused. So I'm going to take this outside of this conversation and back it up because I think you're trying to say something that might not be getting across. So I'm going to I'm going to take it back to the TNG. TNG is a great example because it was OK, the 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 folks who are older have to age out. You are now 36 years old. Yeah, I don't know if you're familiar old. with TNG, but it's you age yeah. out at 35. Yeah, so you're, yeah, so you're, you're 36, you got to go. Yeah. And there was a good 80, 90 people who are very diverse, all under 35, having a great time, enjoying the socials, a place that they needed. And the people who had run it stepped off. They added new people they swapped out out of the idea of having it be TNGers who are running the TNG, which makes sense. But because of the people who stood in, not having the responsibility, not having the desire to uh, make it to the happy hours, not wanting to do those things that you're talking about as far as being a leader, asking people questions, being involved, it was very, a, a big negative impact. And I think that's what Rigel's trying to get across is, is the swapping out if you're not having people who are going to do that job and supply a place for the people who need it always a good thing? And I mean, I guess my perspective is, is not necessarily swapping out, but having people join in and trying to gain more of a leadership and maybe a slower progression of swapping out than what like the TNG did. But I think sometimes when there's that idea of a, of a, of a drop off like that occurred with the TNG that we're talking about, it can do a lot more harm than good. I mean, there, there, there's, there's always got to be like a transition. There's always got to be like a, like a, a transition of leadership. Like it's, it can't just be like, all right, well, you all leave and you all show up and, and never mention it again. But also you just said that like it turned around. So it turned around. It took quite a long time. I wouldn't necessarily agree because if it wasn't for the old leadership coming back and getting involved and sort of 
reorganizing the thing completely back around, it would have been a big hole in the Baltimore community. And it was for a long time. Okay. I, I think a lot of the conversation around making stuff more accessible and let's, you know, I actually let's, cause we, we kind of went down that rabbit hole a little bit, but how do you, let, let's, let's, let's say, how do you go about adding people? You know, if you do have people who are willing to step in, right. Cause that was a lot of like, if you don't have people who are willing to step in and actually step up and do it, how would you go about adding people in who are more diverse? Cause I know you've talked about some of what happened in Philly and I've heard you talk before about like joint events and that kind of stuff. What are some good ways to accomplish that? I've done joint events. You just reach out to other organizers and say like, hey, can we pool our resources here? And it's it's not that hard. I mean, it's just like it. Always, the hardest part is really just taking the initiative to doing any of these things. And I, I keep saying that because I know that's the kind of thing that's kept me on the sidelines before, just feeling like maybe it's not my place. Maybe I shouldn't be doing the thing. Maybe people don't want to hear from me. But then you jump in and then address a need and say like, hey, can we work together? Can we do something together? People are just people. Everyone's scared of everyone. Everyone feels like an imposter. So if you just reach out and put yourself out there, people will respond. You know, people are dying for other people to, to respond. And what if, um, like, you know, on the topic we were just talking on, if you do have a situation where for whatever reason you don't have more diverse people who are willing to step into leadership roles or whatever the case may be, what are some ways that groups or even groups who already have people in more diverse roles can reach out besides the actual physical location, but can actually reach out and, you know, because I think part of this is also getting the word out in the right spaces for different kinds of people. So what are some ways that places can go about doing that? I mean, there are black and poly groups online as well. And reaching out to those groups or putting yourself out there in those groups, that's useful as well. Figuring out sort of what your proximity is to people who can help or might help or would be willing to be paid to help. Because paying people helps too. Like, put <laughs> yeah, That's a whole nother discussion, but I completely agree with yeah. you. That's one reason the burnout rate's so high and it's so hard to get people to do shit. Yeah. Because we expect everybody to volunteer for everything. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you put you put money out there and pe- people will show up and do what you need them to do. That, that's a, yeah, that, that's a whole, we could go on about that for a long time <laughs> and, and about the state of education. And what about like, but I'm saying not just even leadership roles, like what about just getting the word out in, say that you have a group where for whatever reason, you have a smaller group, you have only two people organizing it. They aren't people of color. They, they're not naturally going to be in a lot of these communities. What are ways that you could still kind of reach out and spread the word? You mentioned like black and poly groups online. Anything else you'd recommend with that? I'd say find other people to to add to your leadership team. It's always going to feel like uh, like a like a tokenizing step. You know, it's always going to feel like they're looking for the token that that token black person, that token person of color to come in there and and change their demographics. Like it's it's not an easy thing to to cater to people who aren't you in a way that doesn't feel further marginalizing. Which is why, which is why I always advocate for for changing leadership, like adding to leadership, changing out leadership entirely, just bringing people in because you're gonna lose people in the attempt. Often, there's a whole book you should. <laughs> you should, <laughs> and guys. By the way, and I've, I've mentioned this before, but you definitely should get Kevin's book. It's fantastic. I your book, and and like I said, I've talked. This is a conversation I've had in a lot of other spaces, and your book was the first time that some of this stuff really. Particularly around and like like for me, the simplest example is why we need spaces for people who are of color and poly. Um, you do a fantastic job explaining that stuff. Thank you. Even to people who might have heard the same thing 10 times before from other people. So uh, I, I really, really 
enjoyed your book and you are uh very uh you have you have a very unique style of writing you're very humorous it's fantastic hey i really appreciate that like i didn't realize what was going on humor wise with the book until other people kept telling me about it that and like <laughs> i didn't realize how many geeky references i put in that book until someone was like wow you're you're really a geek there kev just means you're cool that's all that means <laughs> i'll take it so did you want to speak on anything else before I segue in? Or are you good where you're at? I'm poly role models on everything. I'm poly role models on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Everything that I do in regards to like polyamory, you'll find there. My co-writer, Alana Phelan, and I, we have a book called For Hire. It's a queer polyamorous superhero uh, novel. It's called For Hire Operator. It's part of a series called For Hire. We are For Hire Mag on Instagram and Facebook, where you can find updates on the new book. We're hopefully getting it out by the end of this summer. But For Hire Operator, the first book in the series, that's out. People are enjoying it. And we're looking forward to like putting out more because like it's it's a universe we're both really happy with and really happy just exploring. Fantastic. All right. So we're going to do our speed round. The idea is to do this in 60 seconds. So it's real quick answers and you try to get through it as fast as you can. So what is something you're not very good at? Asking for help. Best piece of relationship advice you've ever received? Get rid of all of your expectations. Just go with the flow. What are three things you couldn't live without? My cell phone, my PlayStation, and my children. Awesome. What turns you on? Laughter. Tell me something that's true that almost nobody agrees with you on. Fallout 3 was a terrible game. (laughs) A book you would recommend for our listeners. I don't think our kid would agree with you on that. I know, that's where I went. I was like, my, my son would argue that very much. Everybody right, would. <laughs> a book you would recommend for our listeners. Oh, Besides yours. Besides We're going to recommend yours. that ourselves. Yeah. Come As You Are by Emily Nagoski. What is your biggest fear? Hmm. Bees. Hey, bees. Me too. What's the most adventurous thing you've ever done? It could be something that was sexual or not sexual, but the most adventurous thing you've done. I've gotten a lot of people off with my feet in a lot of different ways. Huh. Okay. Who is your movie or TV famous person crush? (sighs) That changes on a pretty regular basis. Right now, uh, her name is Diane Wakoma. She's the star of Crazy Head. She plays the sister in Chewing Gum. Okay. What is something you're working on right now that you want our listeners to know about? Right now, I'm working on a a piece about polyamory and male entitlement, just based on my own experiences and with entitlement and sort of how I see it. So hopefully that'll be out by the end of the year. I'm just writing it. It's not going to be long, but I'm excited about having it out because like, I've had a couple of experiences that are really relevant. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. Hey, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Touch of Flavor podcast, where we're building relationships outside of the box. Got a question about kink, power exchange, or open relationships that you've been holding on to for years? This is the place to ask it. Submit your question at atouchofflavor.com slash ask or leave us a voicemail at 833-ASK-TOF1. 